We are in the condition we are in, in the state of ignorance we are in, in the state of war, in the state of economic depression, in the state of depletion of the resources of our planet because of the greed of psychopaths who thought they could create their own reality. Well, look at the reality they created. You're listening to The Truth Perspective on the Sot Radio Network, the world for people who think. Okay, can everyone hear us now? Are we online? Okay, we're back. So, um, I'll repeat that. <laughs> this is Welcome Back to the Truth Perspective. It's August 1st. We're going to be continuing our, continuing our discussion from last week on the UK pedophile scandal. I'm getting into some other topics as well. I'm Harrison Cayley. With me is my co-host, Elon Martin. Hi, everyone. And side editor, Shane Lachance. Hi, everybody. So we're just going to get right into it. So we're running behind on time already. And uh, what's the latest on this story, Elon? Well, uh, recently we've had um, an investigation into Kinkora Boys Home, uh, which was a kind of um, a youth hostel for boys, uh, in northern Belfast, Ireland, which is pointing to a lot of uh, kind of high-end government complicity, uh, obfuscations, lies into the abuse uh, for decades of boys who um, came from troubled homes um, and were sent to this boys' home to stay. Um, so it goes into a few different directions that, uh, all have pretty strong, uh, implications and, and, uh, and leads that go directly back to the elite, um, politicians, brewers and shakers of, uh, of the UK. Um, there was an investigation that was started. Um, it was headed by somebody an individual um, who was a former judge, Sir Anthony Hart. Uh, This is part of the historical abuse inquiry. Um, It was suggested by Amnesty International that an investigation be made into uh, the Concora home precisely because it leads back to uh, a kind of a a really horrific, yet another horrific uh, pedophilia ring, uh, or maybe part of the same one. We're just seeing another piece of the elephant here. Um, more information is coming out about it. What we do know so far is that one of the individuals who is being investigated some time back was a William McGrath. Um, he, he kind of elevated the level of abuse uh, at the Concora home uh, to uh, connect it to British politicians, where before it was just uh, the two individuals who were running uh, the home, uh, a Brendan Smith and, a, and uh, another individual, 
um, when it was investigated recently, it turned out that um, a Mark Sedwell, who was a top civil servant uh, in the Home Office, uh, really kind of locked the investigation. He first said that uh, whatever documentation they had had only been kept for two years and then thrown away. And then when asked uh, who was in charge of the original documentation, kind of blatantly uh, refused to say, uh, not wanting to implicate anyone. Um, this William McGrath, who uh, allegedly, well, not allegedly, there's a lot of information to support this, uh, connected uh, these boys and, and to the politicians who abused them. Um, he was part of, this is interesting, something called the Orange Union or the Orange Order. Um, this is one of these kind of uh, Protestant, um, holier-than-thou uh, organizations that's loyal to England, basically. Uh, so there's a kind of a political connection there. Um, they also have Masonic leanings. So, you know, does the Orange Order have some kind of uh, Masonic secret society um, you know, inner circle that uh, protects people uh, who are committing these types of crimes? Are they all connected? You, you know, these are one of the questions that comes to mind when you hear that he was so closely affiliated uh, to this group um, and kind of wore it as a you know, political um, badge of protection uh, because they tout themselves as a kind of you know righteously um, honorable group. Uh, so you had that connection as well. Um, there had been six inquiries previously into the concourse scandal, uh, none of which got anywhere near the kind of truth that this new investigation uh, may lead us to. Um, and that's essentially it. Um, it would be interesting to see where this goes. Uh, you know, in reading about this, I was once again kind of flabbergasted ab about this connection between political elites who have a connection to abuse and, you know, what what is it in their makeup that, uh, that compels them to be connected uh, to this type of behavior? Um, you know, there were stories around the Concora case that uh, that concerned protection by MI5, uh, England's elite, um, you know, their equivalent of the CIA or Mossad uh, in Israel. And um, and why were they protecting McGrath at some point and earlier on in the investigations as well? So, uh, <laughs> you know, part of the story as it goes is that um, – all of these individuals are, are, who are involved in these uh, systemic abuses are kind of being set up for blackmail at a later time in order to do certain things that other people in, in elite circles would have them do. Um, and if so, you know, it would be an extremely 
I mean, they have to know by now that they're being watched by other people in intelligence. Um, so I, I don't know where their heads are. Uh, maybe it's some kind of compulsion to behave in this way. Um, but the only thing I can think of is that these guys are completely psychopathic. Uh, there's some kind of uh, dark thrill um, that satisfies their desire to uh, abuse people and enjoy doing what they do with no uh, with no real risk of of being found out. Well, one of the stories that we were talking about last week was the uh, MI5 disclosure about um, you know some of the things that were happening uh, with these pedophile rings and started to discuss um, these things that you mentioned, Elon, about how um, you know these organizations will have these parties and you know they'll record what's going on and they'll they'll basically have this dirt that they'll use on you know these uh these politicians and um powerful people and you know one of the things that was I was wondering is you know are some of these stories that we're seeing um evidence of you know these these power plays being made you know is is it 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 may in part be that you know there's just such a widespread um uh the, 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 this this disease is, is so massive and you know these there's it's just like this cockroach uh, infestation where there's so many of them that were you know you don't have like you're just going to see them in the daylight you know there's so many um but you know it could also be that you know some of these things are being uh leaked um as a part of you know these these uh, maneuvers to say hey you know we we have this on you and uh, you know, go in this direction or whatever. There's, I'm sure there's a lot of stuff behind the scenes that. You know, I'd, I'd never thought about it that way because, uh, well, I'll get into another story about this, the blackmail aspect. But uh, like you said last week, we talked about the MI5 story about how um, this one guy had had uh, told um, someone else involved in these types of investigations. Uh, I think it was in the 80s that. Uh, the security risk didn't outweigh the potential for embarrassment for the people involved, which was just the most slimeball thing that uh, that he could say about it and the way to approach this issue. But then uh, I read a couple other articles about it, and bringing in the MI5 angle as the blackmail angle, so that the MI5 actually had a probably actually had more of a hand in this in the sense that they themselves were involved by using these. Um, these facts and these individuals and the, the evidence they had on them as blackmail. So uh, to come at it from another angle, I was think, I've been thinking about this story for a while and just how much play it's been getting in the news. And this that's kind of struck me as being a little bit weird because these kind of stories have come up numerous times in the past in various countries. And when we look at what happened with all of those other stories, they were just uh, totally uh, whitewashed and covered up. Now, of course, I wasn't alive or reading the news um, when some of these stories were happening, so I don't know what the the media coverage exactly was like at the time. If it if it anywhere approached this level, like for example with the Franklin scandal or the Dutroux scandal in in Netherlands, France, and and there were other stories in Portugal and other countries where this same kind of thing is going on. But so I've been just asking myself, well, what is why is there there been so much press? Could there could this potentially go in a different direction? 
you know, could could something be something substantial be exposed, whereas in the past it has always been covered up. Now I don't really hold out any hope just from just from the past um, experiences of this and the 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 record of of cover up where every time this happens it's totally covered up and it's never fully exposed. But then so what? But I've never considered the way that you uh, kind of framed it, Shane. Where could this act? Could the scandal as it's been being played out right now be this aspect of the blackmail? It maybe things because we always hear about this blackmail stuff going on, but but if it's being used as blackmail, you'd think that every once in a while people don't go along with it and actually get exposed. But we don't actually hear about that. I mean, we have these kind of vanilla sex scandals that do come out about people cheating on their wives or something like that, but nothing that approaches the level of depravity and just grossness of what's actually going on. So maybe there is something going on behind the scenes where, and this is the, the blackmail being played out where this, these investigations, it's kind of like they're, they're, they're running the investigations, they're looking into it and all the, all the, all the while the people involved are like, okay, well, I know that I'm, that um, they're going to cover up for me. You know, they're, they're going to cover it up because I'm, part of the team or whatever, but there, who knows, maybe there are some of them that are like, okay, well, what does this mean? Am I the guy that's going to get the, um, you know, the, am I going to be the, the scapegoat for this entire organization and this entire thing that's going on? I don't know. That would be pretty interesting. Even if it is the result of blackmail, the guy did deserve it. So I, <laughs> I hope something happens mm. because um, there's just, well, we, we talked about the, 60 Minutes, the Australian 60 Minutes that came out a week or two ago, a couple of weeks now probably, and they interview a few of the <clears throat> adults now, but who were child victims of these people. And the one guy, I think his first name was Richard Kerr. He was he was from the Kinkora uh, house, so they would actually traffic these boys from Northern Ireland to London and to to basically sell them use them as sex slaves for these guys and so he tells a a bunch about what happened and it's just a really sad story we've got a bunch of articles on him and interviews with him on on sought Um, but what i want to get into is kind of a a historical precedent of this that was probably going around going on at the same time actually so this is a contemporaneous event um to all of these events that are coming up now, so like 70s and 80s, and um, that, um, like I mentioned last week, that's the Franklin scandal, of course. But there's a another angle to that story that we haven't really got into, and that is the Washington D.C. Um, sex scandal that was going on at the time. So of course, Nick Bryant wrote the book The Franklin Scandal, which we've recommended numerous times, but earlier this year, he also co-wrote a book, Confessions of the D.C. Madam, The Politics of Sex, Lies, and Blackmail. This was written by Henry W. Vinson and written with Nick Bryant. And this book focuses on, well, it touches on, uh, to a large degree, the, the Washington, D.C. angle. Because in the Franklin scandal, there was, of course, the the Franklin scandal dealing with Larry Franklin and uh, the pedophile murdering that was operating out of Boys Town and using the boys in Boys Town and numerous others. But there was a connection with D.C. in the sense that Larry King, uh, or no, sorry, I said Larry Franklin. <laughs> Larry King is the guy. Franklin was the place. So Larry King um, 
was tied with the, was friends with this guy Craig Spence, and I'll get to him in a minute. But um, the book is written by her by Henry Vinson, and he was the the madam. He he headed the largest DC escort service that uh, catered to all these people, a bunch of individuals, um, all kinds of people in business and politics, and just kind of the the upper echelon of DC society. And uh, just to give a bit of background, because the story itself is interesting, the book is kind of an autobiography memoir of Vincent. And so telling the story of where he came from, so it starts with his childhood and all the way up to the to the present day. So all the events that kind of formed who he was and how he came to be this DC madam. Because hearing the story about this guy that runs this, this escort service and then gets caught up in this giant um, this giant scandal like in going as high as the White House it got me thinking well how does that happen like how does who is this guy and how does he you know how do you get to be the the head of this big escort service in DC that gets involved with all these important people and so I'd recommend the book um, it's it's well written it tells the story and there's a, a lot of juicy details in there but just to give a bit of the background on how it happened, um, Henry Vinson was a, a mortician in uh, a small town, um, not Washington, D.C., and a bunch of stuff happened just to make the story short, and he moved to, to D.C. Um, he was gay, and so he finally, like moving out of this small town, I believe it was in West Virginia, he, you know, going to the big city, he, he kind of was able to escape the the kind of anti-gay attitudes and where he didn't really find a lot of acceptance or even just the ability to, to, to be open about his sexuality. And so he went to DC and of course, you know, there's all kinds of stuff going on. So he, he met guys, he, he met um, guys that turned out to be escorts. And one of these guys that he went on a date with um, put him on to this guy, this other guy who was dying of AIDS and was selling his escort service. So after thinking it over for a while, he decided, okay, well, you know, it's it's available for a good price, and I mean, look, they're in the yellow pages. It's a semi-legitimate business. I can I can make a lot of money out of this. So so he bought it, and he uh, just he showed kind of, uh, the reason that he got so successful. I think was that he just showed a real business acumen in in the escort business. And for example, he there were uh, like a ton of entries for escort services in the DC uh, yellow pages and other kind of um, um, resources for uh, companies like that. And so a lot of them would just be these little fly-by-night routines where they'd open up and then they might get shut down later on. So they'd have um, like unpaid bills for their, for the, for their phone numbers, like phone bills or um, ads that had, that are still going, but that aren't applicable in the yellow pages. And so what he'd do is he'd call up the phone company and offer to pay the old bills for these phone numbers if he could get hold of the phone numbers. So he gained possession of just dozens of numbers for all these phony escort services in the yellow pages. And so his call, uh, like the number of calls that he'd get every day would just increase. He had to get like one of those special phones with like a hundred different lines on it, hundred different phone numbers to be able to field all these calls. And so he just started this business while working as a funeral home director and um, managed to, to just fall into this to being the the head of the, the largest like DC escort service uh male gay escort service and so while doing this 
he, uh, you know, of course, he got a lot of clients. And being D.C., a lot of these clients were top politicians or people involved in administrations or you know cabinets or whatever. And so in the book, he kind of he describes the story leading up to this and how how it was this process of running this escort service that that put him in contact and you know with all these people as his clients. Um, he does name a few names in the book. Um, the only names that he does name are either people who have already been, you know, exposed from their own sex scandals or who are dead. There are many that he doesn't name um, just because he no longer is in possession of any of his records from the time that he was running this escort service because in a trial against him, the, all those records were taken away. So he doesn't have, doesn't have any of the proof that he used to have. That's a whole other story because he was uh, he was put in jail for years for not for well the, the thing is he was <clears throat> he was put on trial and charged with um, kind of like they got him on the the charge of kind of conspiring to conspiring to do stuff and being part of this massive conspiracy and credit card fraud and so he he was punished, but they wouldn't allow any of the names to come out, and none of the actual Johns, the people involved in this, were named or or punished for being involved with any of this. So, the it, it kind of is reminiscent of the Franklin scandal, where the people that are actually, um, you know, deeply involved in this, in the kind of in the shadier aspects, um, just got off scot free. But um, some of the people he named were. Um, well, the biggest name that, that he named was uh, CIA Director William Casey. Uh, I believe that's that was the guy. Just let me look this up here. So, uh, yeah, his uh, keep that name in mind, folks. We're yeah. going to talk about him a little later in a different context. So yeah, he says um, one of the pages. He says, "I felt the first. I felt a potential risk to my life was CIA Director William Casey's patronage." Of my escort service, um, the Washington Times, who actually did a, a half-decent uh, reporting job on this whole story when it happened, and then the Washington Post came in and totally um, just the, the typical Washington Post journalism made uh, made a total whitewash of it, covered it all up, and said, "Oh no, that stuff is true. We talked to people, and they say everything's fine, nothing's going on," which was all lies. Um, but William Casey was uh, frequently attended parties at this guy Craig Spence's house. Now, this guy I was talking about, Craig Spence, who um, eventually, you know, as Vincent's running this escort service, he's he 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 finds out that he's been getting this return client, this guy Craig Spence, who's been spending twenty thousand dollars a month on escorts. And so he was asking his escorts, "What's the deal with this guy? Who is he?" And they said he was in like. Well, it was okay, but he was into really weird stuff and like really weird stuff. But sometimes there'd be parties and a bunch of people or, um, you know, I won't really get into the details, but it turned out that Spence um, ended up kind of taking control of Vincent and, you know, telling him that he owned him and making sure that he did things exactly as as Spence wanted him to. So he kind of, um, through his own uh, machinations, took, took over in a sense and controlled the way Vincent should do this. And the way he did that was because Spence was the guy running a similar blackmail operation to what we were probably seeing in the UK. 
So what he'd do, he'd hire all these escorts and he'd have important people over for parties at his house or just individual rendezvous. And he had his whole place was like wired up and and um, uh, with tape recorders, video recorders behind one way mirrors. And so he he had all this dirt on people. And he told Vincent right up that this is what he was doing. Oh, you know, I use this for blackmailing people. And the reason that he could do this, that he could just come out and say that, was that, first of all, um, just from the description of this guy, he was a total psychopath. He was a total megalomaniac. He, he thought he was, the, like, you know, God's gift to the universe and the, the world revolved around him and he could do anything. And he was just that powerful. And in a sense, he was pretty powerful. Uh, for a while at least, and uh, Vincent says he had pictures of himself with Ronald Reagan and Bob Hope, um, uh, along with numerous other people. He met with um, with people regularly from military and, and business, and, uh, um, well, Spence, so Spence was the guy that was friends with Larry King, and uh, Larry King was actually... Uh, well, Vincent had met Larry King at Spence's house, so there was a connection right there. And this was a conversation that that they, the three of them, had together. Um, Spence revealed to Vincent after the conversation. So this was after Vincent had told him his whole life story and what he was involved with with the escort service. He told him that, um, well, I've just been recording the conversation. Basically, he showed him the gear that was behind this this large mirror in the office. And during this conversation, Frank or King had talked about his pedophile ring that he was running with Spence that involved the, the, the rape and torture and trafficking and murder of children. And so uh, Vincent at the time just thought that these guys were crazy and like one-upping themselves with how evil they were and how, how crazy they were. And it was only when things started coming out about this story that it looked like it was actually true. And he realized that these guys weren't just... Um, just making stuff up to, to to be freaky or whatever. This they, they are actually telling them the truth, and it was all on. It was all recorded in order to to get Vincent in on it in the sense that he couldn't say anything because then he could be exposed. So they were going to use that as blackmail on him. So he got tied up with this, uh, you know, these huge stories and these these just sick individuals, and uh, and so yeah, reading the book, he just. Spence comes off as a total psychopath, and but unfortunately, um, you know, not one that's just making stuff up and constantly making himself out to be um, something that he's not, because this guy did have connections and he was blackmailing people and he had a lot of money to throw around doing all this stuff. Um, but that's kind of the 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 you know Cole's notes version of it is that. Um, th- this was kind of a separate story in the sense that all these D.C. politicians were involved with this gay escort service. And so this in- included um, kind of huge orgy parties with, uh, with, with uh, a ton of people and drugs. And, and these encounters would then be used as blackmail. But then it tied into the, the Franklin scandal with Larry King because Larry King and, and Spence were buddies. And... Apparently, Spence was involved with what was going on in the Franklin scandal. And so, um, well, I just recommend the book to get all the details because, like I said, he named some interesting people. Um, let me just get a couple of names for those interested. One of, one of whom was uh, Paul Ballack. He was the Secretary of Labor's personal liaison to the White House. Um, 
There was uh, Democratic big shot Alan Barron. He was another client. Um, this guy was the publisher of the Barron Report, a weekly newsletter on politics. He was also a political pundit for the Wall Street Journal, and he fe- frequently appeared on, appeared on McNeil Lehrer NewsHour. Uh, he served a stint as the executive director of the Democratic National Committee. And um, another guy, Congressman Barry Frank, or Barney Frank, U.S. Representative Larry Craig from Idaho. Um, this guy, this was a funny, a funny one because Craig. This is what uh, Vincent writes about him. He says uh, that Larry Craig also became a frequent flyer of my escort service. Craig preferred escorts who were quite masculine with a plethora of body hair, uh, bear types. Craig certainly bamboozled the conservative voters of Idaho, of Idaho who ultimately elected him to the U.S. Senate, where he developed quite a reputation for voting against gay legislation. Mm. Craig voted for a constitutional ban on same-sex marriage, and he voted against expanding hate crimes to include sexual orientation. In fact, the Human Rights Campaign, the nation's largest gay and lesbian civil service uh, civil rights organization, gave him a 0% concerning his stance on gay rights legislation. So Senator Larry Craig proved to be a major hypocrite, to say the least. Yeah, if I remember correctly, Larry Craig was um, kind of involved in a scandal where he propositioned uh, someone yeah. in a bathroom in an airport or something. Yeah. You know, it's the interesting thing about these guys. Uh, they work so hard to project this uh, image of, um, uh, you know, values and, and, uh, and the Judeo-Christian uh, kind of old school sense of the word. Uh, and then, you know, like all of these pastors in the in the 80s or 90s of the mega churches, mm-hmm. uh, all end up, you know, revealing themselves to be cretins and uh, and cheaters and uh, and just corrupt in 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 any and every manner. It's pretty well. It's funny in one sense, but kind of sick on the other. Another one. Uh, so. It wasn't just politicians that were involved. Uh, Vincent writes that uh, the Washington Times eventually named a number of the power brokers who attended Spence's uh, Calorama soirees. That was his place. His guests were veritable who's who from the media and politics. Media pundits such as Eric Severade, Ted Koppel, and William Sapphire were in attendance at Spence's parties. High-flying politicians, including Senators John Glenn of Ohio and Frank Murkowski of Alaska, attended his get-togethers, too. Spence's home was also a lure for various Republican movers and shakers, attracting former ambassadors Robert Newman, Elliot Richardson, and James Lilly. Then CIA Director William Casey and John Mitchell, the disgraced former Attorney General under Richard Nixon, were personal friends of Spence who frequented his soirees. And one more interesting thing was uh, Jeff Gannon. Now we remember Jeff Gannon, right? From he was the um, he was the news reporter guy at the at the White House um, for George W. Bush. Yeah, there's, so he, there's a lot of stories in like the 2000s uh, regarding Jeff Gannon. I remember his name well? Yeah, so Gannon uh, came under scrutiny of the White House press corps. At a 2005 presidential press conference, when he asked President George W. Bush a ridiculously partisan question about the Democrats' bleak view of the economy, mentioning that a couple of Democratic senators had, quote, divorced themselves from, from reality. Bush took Gannon's quote, uh, question quite seriously, giving a protracted response, 
but it elicited the ire of the White, Horse, White, White House reporters who started delving into his background and they quickly discovered that he was a gay escort. Um, by, two, by 2005, Gannon ostensibly worked for Talon News, a virtual news service that didn't have a physical, a physical office. Sorry. Now, Gannon made over 200 appearances at the White House during his two-year stint as a White, Horse, White House reporter, attending 155 out of 196 White House press briefings. Over a period of 22 months, Gannon checked in with the Secret Service, but he failed to check out on 14 days. And on one of those days, a press briefing wasn't even held. So that was the kind of the, the hint of something of a scandal there that this gay escort, like seemingly posing as a as a reporter, checks into the White House all these times, attends all these briefings, and checks in sometimes not even for a briefing and never checks out from the White House, implying that he spent the night. So who was he spending the night with? Um, but the thing is, is that the Secret Service was aware of Gannon since at least 1990 because Gannon knew him and Gannon, or no, sorry, uh, Vincent knew him. He knew him as an escort back at the time when he was doing, uh, he was running his escort service in D.C. Um, and so uh, it turned out that, the, that when he was, uh, when Vincent was debriefed in 1990, um, that the information that the Secret Service had from what Vincent, they told Vincent and what Vincent told them was that they knew about Gannon. So all the whole time, the White House knew that this guy had been a, a, a gay escort for years, for decades, and yet they, they were letting him sleep over at the White House. Well, that's why they were getting him in there. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> it's, uh, it kind of gives new meaning to the word prostitute. <laughs> yeah. Um, nice one. <laughs> so... Um, so yeah, check out the book. It's a it's a pretty good read, and uh, quite interesting to see what was going on and how it was handled, and then just how. I mean, yeah, Vincent was running an escort service, but from from the treatment that he got from from the federal government and the Secret Service and everyone else involved, it was just like they ruined this guy's life. Luckily, he's managed to to. Um, like he's now an entrepreneur, he's he's successful, so they didn't totally totally break him. But um, it's a it is a pretty sad story, and just from several angles. So I'd recommend checking it out. Confessions of a DC Madam. Well, there's another angle to all of this that um, you know, in response to what you were saying earlier, Shane, in in your kind of uh, looking at all this as a, a new emergence of blackmail for whatever purposes that may be uh, in the works on the part of um, certain elite circles. And uh, so on one hand, I'm, I'm wondering if the exposure to all of these stories and the exposure that all of these individuals are getting is, is to kind of triangulate them into taking further action that would serve uh, the purposes of, of, you know, certain agendas that they have. And then the other, I'm, I'm wondering if, um, you know, so like, uh, I think the word apocalypse means unveiling, uh, you know, rather strong word, certainly. Um, but, uh, with the advent of the internet as, as noisy as it is with information, um, it's kind of a, you know, in these very tumultuous times, an opportunity for everybody to really, uh, help with the unveiling 
in other words, it's like we're because we've been subject as a as a body of of humanity uh, on this planet to uh, to so much uh, violence and abuse and and uh, injustice and corruption. Um, it's almost you know and. and in one sense, a kind of a, a cosmic justice uh, that we're finally getting to uh, learn about these very shocking um, and and so pervasive uh, circles of depravity that exist uh, at the highest levels, and um, you know, it, it's still it's still mind-boggling. I think I said that last time too uh, that it exists at such a level. Uh, and it's such a, um, mm-hmm. it, it's just such a kind of, to such an extent. So, uh, you have to wonder if there is some more natural, uh, not to get too metaphysical or anything, but if there's some, some kind of natural, uh, process that's been going on here for the past few years where again and again and again and again, we see, you know, one story just worse than the next. Uh, some of these stories, uh, you know, they, they make them look like uh, child play. Um, and I'm thinking now in particular about the um, uh, the, the abuse uh, and stories of, um, of the children in France uh, who were documented as being part of these uh, mm-hmm. satanic groups. I mean, it went... It went beyond uh, rape and physical abuse. It 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 went to the levels of, uh, you know, just the most horrific torture you can imagine, with other children being witness, uh, protected by police uh, in those areas as well. Um, so you know, why now? Uh, it, is it part of some uh, larger? Uh, um, Kind of metaphysical or, or cosmic justice that we're that we're getting to to see these stories come to the fore. Yeah, maybe. Um, yeah, as I was also thinking you know, earlier, it's just like you were saying, it's so pervasive. Um, you know, a lot of these uh, power players you know, have been comfortable in just uh, um, taking off the mask and. You know, as these as these lies are, are built and spread, and and you know, there's just so much uh, absurdity around it too. And I don't think they can recognize, you know, that. And um, so it may, in part, be you know this this dynamic where it's just become so um, infested. The world's become so infested with these creatures and 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 their uh, dynamics that it, it's. It's going to be in the media, and we're going to see these things. I think that regardless of why it's happening, there is a certain effect. And I think of some. I think that the like the Abu Ghraib scandal is kind of uh, similar in a way that by exposing these things, on the one hand, a, a bit of the truth is revealed, but it has a polarizing effect on humanity. And that is those who are absolutely disgusted by it and those who are like, yeah, that's great. I want to be part of this. And so we have this this process that's because of the media and because of media coverage, it's this worldwide process where 
these images are available to people's consciousness and that has an effect on them, then it can polarize them one way or the other. And so we've talked about this dynamic in the past um, and how it happens in times of war, for example. So, for example, in the civil war going on in Ukraine, how this has showed itself very starkly where you just the, the worst and the best of humanity comes out. You have examples of heroism and and people putting their, their lives on the line for something, uh, something greater than their own life that they that they perceive to be greater than their own life, um, some kind of meaning. And then on the other hand, you have people that just descend into the most animalistic of human behaviors, well, if you can call it human behaviors. So you just have this very polarizing effect. We saw it. Uh, you, you can see it kind of going on in uh, Sebastian Hafner's defying Hitler on a on a countrywide scale, where you have this polarizing of just fundamental worldviews on how on politics, on humanity, on on rights and values and justice, and how just how opposite um, that the the reactions can be. So I think that yeah, whatever the cause, it's having a, a pretty profound effect and a massive one too. You're talking about the um defying Hitler and you know that we saw this dynamic on you know in, within Germany but when you look at the United States influence and it just its massive massive dominance uh all over the world um when you know when you look at a map of uh US bases for example it it's the world's littered with mm-hmm. with these things and, and infested infested <laughs> exactly and there's, I think there's like somewhere around a thousand military bases, U.S. military bases, or more. You know, a lot of them that we don't know about, um, all over the world. And you know, this is like a one of the means in, in how uh, the U.S. maintains its influence. And with that, with that opening, you know, there are plenty of countries who do identify with um, the way the United States perceives the world. And within that, there is that fundamental choice of, you know, how you see reality. Is it this psychopathic reality mm-hmm. or is it actual reality, you know, uh, reality that's that's um, composed of objective events? Yeah, I mean, it, it's interesting. It, it is as though we're being presented with a choice in a very real way, um, you know, and, and uh there's this idea that uh, in the Bible you have this idea about the, the mark of the beast, and you have all sorts of folks kind of ascribing, you know, uh, these barcodes and, and numbers, uh, tracking, microchipping of individuals to keep track of them. And but there's another idea, and that the, that the, that it is the um, it is the acceptance of torture uh, as a means to do anything. Um, which would be the mark of the beast. And to accept that uh, idea would be to stain your soul, uh, to stain yourself, your being, uh, with with something that is fundamentally beastly or inhuman. Um, so, you know, like you were saying, Harrison, uh, there is this kind of fundamental uh, choice and, and a polarization uh, that we're seeing right now in all these events. And, and um, we're we have to ask of ourselves what uh, you know when it comes right down to it, deep down, you know, what position are we going to take on this? Are we going to uh, 
believe the lies that uh, that support uh, justification for these actions, or uh, are we at least going to begin the process of questioning why people are being made to suffer to such a degree that they are, uh, and and find it in ourselves to um, to take a stand uh, at the very least, you know. <laughs> With ourselves, but hopefully in a in a greater conversation that people can have with others, um, that that communicates that it is not acceptable uh, on any level, and to to kind of uh, condone it or or shove it aside or ignore it or or uh, just not acknowledge it is to in a way become complicit with it. Uh, so it's an important topic. I think we're seeing it in many different spheres, um, and uh, and I think as things continue to um, destabilize and and get worse uh, economically, environmentally, uh, this choice is going to be ever more present in people's minds as they decide how they're going to respond to information and uh, and circumstances that they find themselves in. Mm-hmm. Well, one of these spheres, I think, is, is certainly uh, with you know how the United States portrays Russia, and you know what Russia actually is doing, and uh, we have a, a new or we just saw a confirmation uh, for the new uh, uh, Joint Chiefs of Staff this week, uh, Senator, uh, General Joseph Dunford. Uh, he, so he's he's the latest in this long line of psychopaths and uh, just like delusional um, reality makers. And um, during his confirmation hearing, um, which was I think it was about three weeks ago, uh, he was he was making these pretty uh, just delusional statements about Russia. I think we have a clip. Yeah. What our threats are today. What would you consider the greatest threat to our national security? My assessment today, Senator, is that Russia presents the greatest threat to our national security. In, in Russia, we have a nuclear power. We have one that not only has the capability to violate uh, the sovereignty of our allies and, and to, uh, to do things that are uh, inconsistent with our national interests, but they're in the process of doing so. So if you want to talk about a nation that, that could pose an existential threat to the United States, I'd have to point to Russia. And if you look at their behavior, it's nothing short of alarming. It, certainly the relationship with Russia uh, a few years ago, if you recall, we, we, we actually were including them in NATO meetings and so forth, and those kinds of exchanges have stopped. From my perspective, my role would be, uh, even even as the relationship is challenged and even with the difficulties that we face right now, I think it's important that we attempt to maintain a military-to-military relationship, an effective military-to-military relationship with our Russian counterparts to the extent possible to mitigate the risk of, of miscalculation and begin to, to turn uh, the trend in the other direction in terms of trust. Yeah, crazy. Um, and this, uh, he said this a day after uh, another military official came out saying that, uh, I think it was the secretary of the Air Force or one of those, um, one of those people. And, uh, she said that, uh, she also, or she believed that Russia was the greatest threat to the United States. So you have this, um, this pattern of these high up military officials, uh, saying these things when there is no basis in reality. Uh, Russia, uh, you know, hasn't done anything, um, 
remotely close to anything that the United States is doing on you know a, a daily and um, you know for for decades. Violating the the sovereignty of all of our allies. Um, what about the sovereignty of the people that aren't your allies and the nations that aren't your allies? Like all of the countries that the United States uh, is, you know, all of the all of those sovereign nations that they are violating. Uh, like I said, it doesn't matter. It doesn't? Yeah, no, not at all. I mean, that's it's 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 such a it's such a bizarre thing. And uh, like we're kind of saying earlier, you know, these things these these lies are just compounding and they're getting bigger and bigger. And you know, the choice is in front of people whether they're going to choose to accept these lies or, or they're going to actually think about these things. Mm-hmm. Well, I, I was wondering in listening to him just now if maybe he was um, on something. <laughs> well, we know he's on something. <laughs> he's on the he's on the power trip, uh, USA, but. Uh, he mentioned, you know, keeping in close contact with the military of Russia mm-hmm. uh, to prevent some kind of, you know, greater conflagration. You know, we have to we have to keep in touch with our counterparts in order to uh, prevent any kind of accidental, you know, um, beginning of something, you know. Uh, and I, I, did you guys get the sense that maybe he's setting up something there or was that just a kind of a um, something he put out there as a as a. Uh, just to support the idea that uh, Russia could somehow be an aggressor. Well, in, in his interpretation, uh, I think what he was meaning was, you know, a continual buildup of NATO around Russia that's being in contact with, uh, you know, <laughs> these Russian military. Um, and and also he did go on to say during that hearing. Uh, that he believes that we should be arming uh, Ukrainian soldiers, and you know, he's he's all for that. Uh, so he, he really does want war with Russia. Well, on the subject, um, you know, it's it's very interesting. Uh, Russia has recently enacted um, a law that would uh, consider um, organizations like the uh, National. Endowment for Democracy is illegal, uh, or that they would at least have to, not illegal, but that they would have to register as foreign agents, and that their uh, behavior would be limited to to certain things within Russia. Now, is this uh, an, an amendment to the current law? Because I think they have, they do have something on the books now where, where they do say that, you know, there's this registration process for foreign agents, you know? Yeah. Well, back in 2012, um, there was a law signed that gave authorities the power to declare organizations foreign agents if they were engaged in any kind of politics or received money from abroad. Um, And I I think that this goes a step further. Um, I think what it does, let's see here. Uh, Well, for one thing, it declares, you know, according to um, the National Endowment for Democracy President Carl Gershman, uh, who wrote a piece for the Washington Post recently, kind of in response to all of this, um, you know, he's he's kind of um, lashing out at the fact that Russia is basically saying his National Endowment for Democracy is undesirable, and it is undesirable. They're paying people. Um, 
last week I forgot the name of the individual, uh, and uh, I think I forgot it again. But um, um, there are these uh, these guys who were who were um, being promoted and propped up within Russia to speak out, you know, and call themselves pro-democratic, and they're being directly or indirectly funded by organizations like the National Endowment for Democracy. Um, so uh, we're seeing a lot of uh, backlash. Um, and this guy, Carl Gershman, who has been with the uh, endowment uh, from the very beginning, um, which is like for decades, uh, is really pissed off. So he writes this article for the Washington Post, and um, and he leaves out uh, a lot of crucial points. And one is that the U.S. has legislation itself about registering uh, as, as a foreign agent. The U.S. would never allow this sort of thing, with the exception, of course, for you know, APAC. Um, uh, and it doesn't have any choice in that matter, I suppose. Well, it's basically do as I say, not as I do. And exactly. I mean, you can look at the same thing uh, in terms of military bases. Mm-hmm. And, you know, how many foreign military bases are in the United States? Come on. So uh, a little bit about the uh, NED. Um, it was kind of originally created as a uh, soft power organization, non-governmental organization uh, that would do what the CIA has done for many years, uh, and that is to covertly infiltrate a country, uh, pay off or blackmail uh, certain organizations, uh, leaders, um, except the NED, the NED does it by establishing these um, these color revolutions uh, or you know uh, pro-democracy groups um, that really are just there to promote uh, U.S. policy and uh, and put in a puppet regime. Um, darn. I think we have to it's it's almost an hour into the show and mm-hmm. we didn't do our commercial yet. No, yeah, we've been we've been putting it off just because uh, you know how much we hate advertising. Right, well, pay the bills, fellas. I'm gonna continue with some of this after the commercial. Okay, so here we go. A word from our sponsors. Let's get it over with. Have a pest problem in your nation? Local dissidents infesting your vassal state? Don't panic and trust just anyone. Call us immediately. We're always ready to take care of your needs no matter the time of day or night. We are certified, affordable, global pest control technicians and can come to your country in a flash. We'll assess the problem quickly, tell you the cost, and get the job done right, guaranteed. At Mises Death Squads, dissident pest control is our specialty. They won't know what hit them. You know our work already, but maybe you didn't know it was our company that was responsible for a number of international successes. Such happy customers include Syria, 1949, Iran, 1953, Guatemala, 1954, Tibet, 1955 to the 70s, Indonesia, 1958, Cuba, 1960 Nicaragua, 1981-1990. And do take note of our resounding work in Libya in 2011. And soon again in Syria, we're almost there. 
When your subjects show the first signs of trouble accepting Western freedom and democracy, act quickly. Otherwise, your pest problem will turn into a pest disaster. Don't risk more damage to your power and control by putting the problem off any longer. Our special U.S. trained death squads are just a phone call away. 1-800-555-KILL. That's 1-800-555-5455. Got mice, protesters, or other rodents? Get mices. Our solutions are permanent. Satisfaction guaranteed. Just listen to one of our happy customers. We came, we saw, he died. (laughs) Now also offering full stain removal services. Have blood on your hands? Our patented Guilt Be Gone whitewash will cover the stains no problem. We've got all the mainstream media tools you'll ever need. Proudly made in the USA and brought to you by the folks at The Secret Team. All hail the god Baphomet. Those damn mices. Wow, that's quite an extensive customer list there. Well, that that would be an example of hard power, I guess. Where where do we get these sponsors from, Harrison? I don't know. But these these guys, whoever, mices, it sounds like they've got a pretty good track record. I mean, I'd go with them just based on the quality of the of the advertising. I'm a sucker for a good ad. Well, I, I guess I guess that's where organizations like the NED, you know, come in, you know, where they have to be a little more delicate uh, about um, taking over a country's political apparatus and, 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 you know, instituting their own kind of uh, uh, policies, you know, where they where they can't quite be so um, violent. They have to use soft power and. Uh, and kind of change things from within to make it look like there's this naturally occurring uprising from people who are looking for a better way or a more democratic or Western way. And of course, the problem is that I think many of these people are well-intended. You know, tell me one country in the world that doesn't have problems with their economy or, or with uh, uh, social services. Politicians. Corruption. Yeah. So uh, they they have these they form these uprisings that are um, by these bought and paid for uh, promoters of democracy, and they you know chant these slogans and speak these talking points, and they're largely ignorant of of to what end these uh, these movements are are being steered and why they're being created to begin with. And I think they don't even actually need to uh, fundamentally, fundamentally change uh, the <clears throat> the opinions of, of people, um, but they just need to have that uh, presentation where it seems to exist. So they'll go in, you know, largely working with uh, these ideologies and utilize, uh, you know, bought and paid for press uh, and media and and broadcast their message and make it appear like you know there's this um there's this big uh movement and as long as people think that okay well you know a lot of people are thinking this i'm i'm probably you know in the minority uh these these then they can go in and and you know really you know uh, conduct these types of operations without too much protest from the people because there's this belief that Okay, well, this is happening. There's this move. There's these movements, and so on. Well, just getting back to this, um, this kind of uh, 
lashing out against Russia and calling it undemocratic and bad for the Russian people because of Russia's very smart choice to, uh, you know, isolate and limit uh, the effects of, of these NGOs uh, from operating within Russia. Um, you know, it, it's it's interesting to to read uh, Carl Gershman's language here. He says, uh, you know, the latest move announced Tuesday is to declare the NED an undesirable organization under the terms of a law that Mr. Putin signed in May. The law bans groups from abroad who are deemed a threat to the foundations of the constitutional system of the Russian Federation, its defense capabilities, and its national security. The charge against the NED is patently ridiculous. The NED's grantees in Russia last year ran the gamut of civil society. They advocated transparency in public affairs, fought corruption and promoted human rights, freedom of information and freedom of association, among other things. All these activities make for a healthy democracy, but are seen as threatening from the Kremlin's ramparts. The new law on undesirables comes in addition to one signed in 2012 that gave authorities the power to declare organizations foreign agents if they are engaged in any kind of politics and receive money from abroad. The designation from the Stalin era implies espionage. Well, that's exactly what it is. Mm -hmm. It's it's highly organized. And they are foreign agents. Um, Hello. (laughs) Yeah. This this language is just so bizarre. I mean, he's, he's... Outraged that they'll be called foreign agents, and they are foreign agents. And I love the list of the great things that the NED does, the great things that they stand for, which happen to be things that don't exist in the United States. Well, this is interesting, um, because you mentioned earlier, Harrison, that uh, William Casey, the former head of CIA, had been uh, in, involved. I mean, uh it's just a coincidence. A lot of these figures come up again and again in, in various ways. Um, so uh, CIA Director William Casey uh, actually had a hand in the NED's creation. Um, he worked with a senior CIA covert operation specialist named Walter Raymond Jr. Uh, to establish the NED in 1983. Uh, so Casey and Raymond... Uh, from his from his assignment inside of President Ronald Reagan's National Security Council, focused on creating a funding mechanism to support groups inside foreign countries that would engage in propaganda and political action that the CIA had historically organized and paid for covertly. Um, so, and this is from an article by Robert Perry, by the way. Uh, Perry goes on to say that uh, to partially replace that CIA role, the idea emerged for a congressionally funded entity that would serve as a conduit for this money. So once again, it's, you know, it's like uh, more, better, different. You know, it's it's another uh, another slicker, um, less obvious way for them to achieve what they've always done, which was to subvert, uh, take over, um, and uh, kind of dominate countries that they want to have some kind of rule over or influence over. Um, 
So, yeah, that's an interesting article. It's by Robert Perry. I think it's on SOT. Um, it's interesting to note also that uh, China, not a few weeks ago, um, has also been kind of putting through their own uh, anti-NGO um, laws. Uh, they're following Russia's lead on this, um, and it's kind of a kind of a common sense thing to do at this point because uh, China knows that the U.S. is gunning for them as well. Um, and the list of uh, non-governmental organizations is uh, is quite long as well. Uh, you have the Open Society by funded by George Soros. Um, that's also been put on the list by Russia. Um, and how can they not? I mean, uh, you recently had in Armenia uh, an attempt by Open Society funded. Um, political groups um, who were trying to start this electric revolution, which kind of began as a um, as a demonstration against the high price of electricity uh, that uh, the people of Armenia were experiencing and and, um, and talking out against. So uh, that seems to be their hook. They take one kind of one or two kind of social issues um, that that are probably legitimate. And they they kind of rode, ride the coattails of that, and and turn that into a a cause uh, that would uh, be a backdoor for uh, U.S. influence. And so apparently this you know electric revolution in Armenia has petered out. Um, Russia has been sharing information about this dynamic. Um, with the media and, and people uh, who are a little smarter um, and and people are catching on and um, and so I think I think this thing is going to be a lot more difficult to do uh, I think the, the smarter nations of the world or their governments are they've got the US's number and this is full spectrum defense against uh, these covert kinds of um, attacks. Well, the thing is that, you know, with, with any country in the world, that the type of world that we live in, there's going, there's going to be, you know, uh, some types of uh, issues with, with human rights. But the way that these um, NGOs operate is by using, <coughs> excuse me, uh, using these, uh, these issues uh, as a means of you know, pursuing uh, more covert uh, and really destructive uh, interests, you know, we we see we see all the time um, the United States uh, talking about human rights violations in China or in in Russia, and mostly with Russia in regards to um, you know gay rights. And anybody who's really looked into the issue, the only law uh, in in Russia is. Uh, regarding you know not um, publicizing um, uh, sexuality uh, uh, homosexual or not even just homosexual but um, you know uh, uh, non mainstream um, sexuality to children and and since two you know, percent of the population is gay you know that I think that's a, a fairly understandable law 
Now the United States has taken that and twisted it to, you know, say that you know Russia is the most uh, anti-gay country in the world and and you know deserves to, um, you know, have all this, uh, you know, just this um, anti-Russian sentiment directed against it. And uh, there was a there was one video uh, I remember seeing, um, you know, just uh, this past couple of weeks where there was a couple. Who are trying to make this point of you know how um, you know um, and you know, how unfriendly uh, Russians are towards towards gays and they were walking through and you know videotaping it and just showing people's uh, responses which um, uh, you know, there were you know it's just they weren't generally welcomed um, and. The kind of point of the video was just to show, you know, this immense hostility, um, and I don't think it necessarily um, achieved that. You know, it, it did show that uh, gays aren't aren't necessarily uh, welcomed in Russia, but uh, the follow-up to this video or to this video, I thought was interesting. There was a, another couple um, who were, you know, did this the similar uh, experiment in Kiev, and the intention was to show, you know, how progressive uh, Kiev ha- has become in 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 their views, and uh, it ended with uh, these guys, these six around six or seven guys, um, pepper spraying them and kicking them. I mean, they were they were physically assaulted, and so you know, and it, it was really bizarre because they they still believed, you know, despite this attack that. Uh, one of the uh, makers of, of the video, uh, he was. Um, let me see if I can find it here. Uh, he just made a quote on on saying like how um, how open and uh, the Ukrainian people are, and you know it, it just totally conflicted with them getting attacked, um, and it kind of uh, it reminded just like uh, a few months ago or earlier in the summer there was a. Uh, there was a march for equality in in Ukraine, and, and I'm not sure if it was Kiev, and they had to, you know, really conduct this um, this parade uh, in, in under a lot of secrecy, and you know, just to be invited, you had to be cleared by, you know, um, knowing somebody who who was putting on the parade, and despite all all these uh, types of uh, protections. There was still uh, a large, um, fairly large attack that broke out uh, during the parade, and um, around nine or ten uh, protesters were injured, uh, and around nine or ten um, or nine policemen were injured, and one of them uh, ended up in the hospital with a, a severed artery. Uh, so, you know, this kind of really goes to show, uh, you know, uh, that. What's being depicted as far as Western values and uh, just the, um, you know, just how big of a facade it is, really. In, well, I think it's a great success of, of Western values yeah, and exactly. freedom and democracy. That's what it's all about. Right. Well, you know, I'm, I'm willing to bet, Shane, that uh, the, the vast majority of Ukrainians are probably tolerant individuals. But but exactly exactly you have but the, you have this little Nazi problem. <laughs> <laughs> yes, it's big Nazi problem. They've, they've basically been empowered to go ape shit. Yeah. All over all of these uh, all over the normal people. 
of, mm-hmm. of Ukraine. Uh, and, um, you know, what's, what's really funny is this, this poll, Harrison, I know you know about it, that was conducted mm-hmm. in Ukraine. Maybe you want to just mention a little bit about that. Well, yeah, so this, this kind of crazy nationalist news site in Ukraine decided to do a poll asking uh, um, something like, who would you trust to rule Ukraine or to lead Ukraine? And they had, you know, just a list of people you could choose from, politicians from all over the world, Ukraine's own politicians, um, you know, all the big names like Timoshenko and Poroshenko and Yarosh and, you know, uh, Kolomoisky, all the all the big names in Ukraine. Pretty much all the Ukrainians got either zero or one, close to 1%. Poroshenko got, I think, 2%, and Vladimir Putin got 84% on this, uh, you know, right-wing Ukrainian website, which was pretty funny. And, uh, of course, the Ukrainians will respond. The crazy Ukrainians will respond, oh, this must be Putin's trolls, Putin's Internet trolls. You know, the the guys that he keeps chained up in his basement on their computers spreading pro-Putin propaganda all over the Internet must be these guys, right? So there were something like, I think, 54,000 votes for Putin. But um, even if that was the case, you had 500 people vote for Poroshenko. And so where where's all the popular support for for these, you know, actual Ukrainian politicians? Um, it's just, uh, I, so I don't, I don't think it was, there were probably a few Putin trolls on there voting, but uh, even if there weren't, it's still... It wouldn't make a difference because still all the Ukrainian politicians got nothing. Well, so yeah, I mean that just speaks to uh, the the extent to which the U.S. Um, uh, dominated or uh, propagated, instigated, supported, financed uh, coup in Ukraine of 2014 uh, is this kind of. Um, it it really is this this kind of uh, virus of psychopathy that's been injected into that country, where most of the people uh, would actually say, in spite of everything, they would support Putin as their leader more than Poroshenko by 84 times. Um, so, I mean, that, that's just. That really that that speaks volumes, and I I wish that article could be uh, spread quite a bit further. <laughs> well, just mm-hmm. on the subject of Ukraine Russia news, uh, MH17 is in the news again recently for well, a few stories that have come out, but the the big one is the uh, UN Security Council resolution that was vetoed by Ukraine. This one was calling for a tribunal to to charge the guilty party, and so. Russia vetoed it, um, of course, leading to the expected response, oh, how could Russia do this? It means uh, it's just giving Russia and the guilty parties impunity, and it's obvious that Russia is guilty and they don't want to be, you know, they're only vetoing this because they know they're guilty, and uh, it's just a, a horrible miscarriage of justice and blah, 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 um, which, of course, is all total nonsense. Uh, <laughs> Because, uh, well, a few things aren't taken into account. This was a UN Security Council resolution calling for a tribunal, but not for an investigation. This was just for a tribunal. Now, of course, an investigation and a tribunal are two different things. And if these people that, you know, in the media that are 
framing it in this totally disingenuous way had any kind of memory or any kind of decency, they would also remember and tell their viewers or their readers that it was Russia, remember, that um, that supported and drafted and introduced the resolution last year, Resolution 2166, on MH17 calling for, quote, a full, thorough, and independent international investigation into the incident in accordance with international civil aviation guidelines and demands that those responsible for the incident for the incident be held to account and that all states cooperate fully with the efforts to establish accountability. So Russia actually fully supports the investigation and fully supports officially, legally, the holding the, the parties, the guilty parties to account. Now, of course, this latest resolution, the reason Russia vetoed it is because it was transparently an effort to be able to set up this sham tribunal that would charge Russia for being guilty, forgetting about any investigation, because the investigation is a total fraud anyways, and they're, I mean, when are they going to come out with some actual evidence? So this was going to be this kangaroo court set up to to uh, to blame whomever, um, not based on the actual investigation. If you actually um, followed the, the now what's What's in the UN, the UN precedent, is that the, the one that everyone agreed on, yeah, you do an investigation and then you discuss the, from that, you proceed to the holding to account. So Russia, I mean, supports that. It's not like they're saying, oh, you know, we, we got to be very careful because they're, they're getting onto us and we might get, we might get uh, tried in this tribunal. It's nothing of the sort. Now, what's, What's also interesting about this is that this is totally unprecedented. There's never been a tribunal like this before for an aviation disaster of, of this type. And what reeks of hypocrisy is actually, well, there's a few things. First of all, that Russia has been the, pretty much the only party involved out of the countries involved that has turned over all, all the data, or at least some data, some relevant data that they have on the on the the downing of MH17, uh, Ukraine, Kiev still hasn't released their recordings of the Dnepropetrovsk uh, tower communications there. The U.S. hasn't released the satellite photos that it undoubtedly has that could show Russia's involvement if they had it. And so, um, who's you know who's obfuscating the the investigation at this point? Well, it's Ukraine and the United States, and along with their lackeys. Um, like the Netherlands, and uh, they're probably strong-arming Malaysia too. Now, um, another aspect of the, just the hypocrisy of this is that two of these countries, Ukraine and the U.S., have shot down civilian airliners before and were not held to account. So in 2001, Ukraine shot down a Russian uh, Tu-154 over the Black Sea, killed all 78 civilians on board, they initially initially denied that they were involved in the shootdown, but then President Kuchma um, was forced to say, quote, uh, take a look around what is going on in the world and, and in Europe. We are not the first or the last ones to, quote, or to, you know, shoot down a civilian plane. No need to make a tragedy out of this mistake. Mistakes happen all the time, even bigger mistakes than this one. So there's Kuchma just taking no responsibility for it. The United States, too, though, shot down Iran Air Flight 655 in 1988 over Iranian airspace. And so after Iran called the United Nations Security Council to condemn the United States for, for downing this civilian airline, President George H.W. Bush said, I will never apologize for the United States. 
I don't care what the facts are. I'm not an apologize for America kind of guy. So, I mean, just look at that and then compare that to what's going on today and what these people are saying about Russia, who didn't even shoot down the plane. Well, it, it's despicable on a number of levels, but um, in the grander scheme of things regarding MH17, it seems like there's a, a kind of a race right now to um, with competing narratives uh, because you have some very interesting information coming out, uh, especially in the past uh, few weeks and months, uh, regarding what may have actually happened um, to MH17. Um, that, that's being shared by the alternative media and by uh, Russian aviation uh, analysts. And so, um, and, and all of this information isn't being looked at, taken on board, or even considered um, by those who are leading the charge against Russia for, for not being accepting of this kangaroo court tribunal. Uh, why? Because they don't want these facts uh, acknowledged. Uh, the the political will to to put Russia um, to make Russia guilty of this uh, far outweighs any desire to come to the truth of what may actually happen. Um, in any case, one one of the more interesting uh, pieces of information to come out was a um, this was actually a, a conversation. Um, that was recorded by uh, some air traffic folks who sold this information uh, and a recording to um, to an analyst in Russia. And uh, it was only paid for after it was considered uh, legitimate and, um, and authentic. Um, so uh, Sergei Sokolov, an aviation expert with the Russian Federal Information Center Analytics and Security, uh, offered an account of, uh, of the last moments of MH17. Um, and he says that he's pretty sure that the airliner was destroyed from within and that it was a special operation. Um, so he says that... Uh, Sokolov details what he says are the cockpit voice recordings between the pilot of an Su-27 combat aircraft and a flight control officer, um, and I think it was, I think it was determined um, in in another analysis uh, a few weeks ago that was covered by uh, by Joe Quinn in an article um, that said that it, it could have only been an Su-27 or a plane like it that had been retrofitted um, with uh, Israeli technology and, and electronics and, and guidance systems that, that could have uh, had a, a second influence on that plane going down and, and shot it uh, from an elevation that could not have been um, from a, a book a BUK missile from the ground, which people are saying, you know, was committed by the, um, uh, the Nouveau Russians. Um, so a little bit of that conversation, um, you know, the, the officer, uh, presumably from the flight control center says, 7.30, can you see the target? Pilot, yes, I can see it. Leftwards to traverse at higher altitude. Big one, right? Yeah. 
The pilot says, 7.30. Didn't get it. Repeat. Right. The target is big, says the officer. Um, and then Ivan Ivanov helped understand the particularities of the communication of military pilots. Uh, he said that when an interceptor is directed to a, to a target by military flight control, you often hear, quote-unquote, target. But in some cases, if the target is not military or not specific, such words as big are used as well, he explains. Um, according to the, re the recording handed over to the editor's office of uh, this organization that put out this information, the pilot was receiving the coordinates of the other aircraft from ground control. A couple of minutes later, he reports visual contact with a passenger aircraft and then received his instructions. Um, and, you know, you can read this in, in the article. I think it was posted just today uh, to solve. Uh, you could read some more of the exchange between the officer and the pilot of the uh, SU. Um, so there's all this information coming out now um, that if given the proper venue and attention would very um, would propose some serious problems for the U.S. Uh, and Ukraine um, because the narrative that they're suggesting about Russia being a part of this uh, will pretty quickly fall apart, I think. Well, just on the topic or, or the subject of this latest alleged leak, um, I'm pretty sure that SOT is the only site that I've seen or that I'm aware of that even proposed the idea of there being a bomb on board mm -hmm. in H-17, and so for this internal cause. So I'm I'm open to the possibility that this Sokolov or what, whatever his name is is just reading SOT and... Uh, <laughs> And throwing out another idea out there. We'll just have to wait to see because because uh, uh, I don't think the recording itself has been released. It hasn't been, um, you know, analyzed by anyone except this this group that's, you know, I, I don't think we know much about in Russia. But I think it is interesting. And especially, I think the kind of the, the take-home message from it is, for me, is just that these alternative scenarios don't get any media attention in the U.S. or the West in general. So when I'm talking to someone that just listens to the news um, on TV or the radio, they're not even aware of the possibility that there was even a, a jet involved that was shot down by anything other than a book missile system by from the, the Novorossian rebels. That's the only possibility out there in their minds. They're not even aware that there are other options and other evidence showing other possibilities. So just a total media blackout on the alternative possibilities is what gets me that uh, people aren't even aware that uh, th there's even the remotest possibility that Kiev was responsible. And so the 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 presupposition, the, 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 the thing on everyone's mind whenever they read an article, say, about this latest UN resolution that that Russia vetoed is that first of all Russia is guilty and therefore so because Russia is guilty therefore oh they vetoed this resolution that means that they're just covering up for themselves no there's alternative possibilities that must be kept in mind but you actually need to read something and find out what they are first instead of just listening to what the ma mainstream media shuts down your throat 
Well, that's the thing. Most people, what they um, associate with with uh, uh, MH17 is just the barrage of uh, these news reports when you know it first happened. Putin killed my baby, you mm-hmm. know, and like that's what stays in their mind uh, because you know the, the media won't cover any other aspect of that. So they just have that emotional attachment, and that's what that's what drives everybody. Mm-hmm. Well, it's easy. You yeah. Know? It's easy. Uh, you're presented with uh, a narrative, and all possibilities are closed off. And to any other, poss- you know, any other theory or information, and that's pretty much exactly how we're controlled by the media uh, in every respect. Um, and in, until you see it and have some kind of uh, direct proof of it. Um, you know, uh, when we had uh, Joaquin Hagopian here, uh, he was talking a little bit about um, his experience uh, with the lawsuit against West Point and um, and how the media completely spinned the entire story and uh, made him out to be this slovenly, you know, unappreciative uh, cadet. Um, where it it was really these you know the, the kind of leadership of West Point that was out to get him, um, and so he learned firsthand. Uh, he recalls having to call up the newspaper uh, of his local uh, neighborhood, his hometown, and set the record straight, and did it with such conviction that uh, one of the chief editors agreed to interview him again and, and post a kind of article that would be a retraction uh, or just, just at least a clarification of the facts. Um, so it's almost as though unless people demand uh, some truth, they're not going to get it. They're going to get the default. They're going to get the narrative that serves uh, the interests of people who understand how the game is played. And most people don't understand how, how this is. And it's not, you know, it's, it's really not a game. It's just, it's a life and death um, struggle to to get information that is based on facts. I want to go back to the uh, gay parades that uh, that you were talking about, Shane, because there was one recent an LGBT uh, parade recently in Jerusalem. Uh, this was on Thursday, and an ultra orthodox Jew stabbed at least six people there. So this guy was named. Uh, Yeshai Shlish, uh a follower of Haredi Judaism, which rejects modern secular culture. So he stabbed six people there, obviously because he's a lunatic fanatic, not job. And he had actually recently been released from jail after serving a 10-year prison sentence. He was initially sentenced to 12 years for attempted murder, but the Supreme Court of Israel shortened his sentence. Before committing the stabbing in 2005, he reportedly shouted, "I came to kill in God's name." Um, and since his release, since his release, he has campaigned in his hometown to cancel the parade, handing out handwritten leaflets. Um, so just another, like you know, inconsequential lone nut that a religious fanatic terrorist. Oh, did I say that? Was, can I call this guy a terrorist? He's certainly yeah. an extremist, and yeah, yeah you know, that's, that's, he's a terrorist. He's a terrorist. 
Um, but it just got me thinking because there's been a few stories in the, in the news recently that uh, that just uh, kind of all came together for me. Uh, I saw this one on Facebook and checked it out. So there was a, a flight recently from New Jersey to Toronto, and on this flight was a former chef from Halifax, Christine Flynn. And the story has come out that a flight attendant had to ask her if she would move her seat where she was, from where she was sitting on the plane because an ultra-Orthodox Jewish man refused to sit next to her. Uh, this was on Monday. And so she politely declined, being uncomfortable with the other passenger's manner. Um, she said another, and apparently another passenger did offer to change seats with this ultra-Orthodox ultra orthodox Jew so he wouldn't have to um, sully himself by sitting next to a female um, and Flynn said that, quote, he came down the aisle. He didn't actually look at me or make eye contact. He turned to the gentleman across the aisle and said, change. Um, he he could have made a plan. He could have put in a request, you know, to the airlines before being on there that I don't like women, so keep them away from me. Um, but she says when someone, uh, but he didn't do that, obviously. So she says, when someone doesn't look at you, and when someone doesn't acknowledge you as a person because of your gender, you're a lot less willing to be accommodating, no doubt. And, of course, this isn't the first time something like this has happened because these ultra-Orthodox Jews are ultra kind of crazy when it comes to um, just interacting with members of the opposite sex. Um, so in the last few years, several flights have been delayed from New York to Israel, um, causing anywhere from a 15-minute to a several hours long delay. Um, because of these ultra-Orthodox Jewish men who refuse to sit next to women. Um, I think it's just charming, these guys. They're just, uh, I mean, such exemplars of of religious righteousness and uh, holiness. And, I mean, they are truly doing the will of God by uh, refusing to sit next to women and even look at them or talk to them or speak with, speak with them. Well, they are the chosen ones, yeah. Harrison. I mean, uh, you know. Well, that, well, that reminds me. Um, everyone's favorite Israeli, or at least some, uh, former Israeli Prime Minister, Golda Meir, um, uh, kind of infamous quote from her that uh, I just reread recently. Uh, she said, quote, This country, Israel, exists as the accomplishment of a promise made by God himself. It would be absurd to call its legitimacy into account. Absurd. Absurd to call legit. <laughs> um, okay, that's just stupid. Um, I don't even know what to say with that, but I'll probably come up with something after I read this next story. Um, so this one happened just recently again. Um, involved the death of an 18-month-old Palestinian child in occupied West Bank. This after a suspected so-called price tag or retaliation arson attack by right-wing Jewish settlers in the West Bank. So the victim's four-year-old brother and parents, parents were also injured and had to be brought to hospital. The attack took place in the early hours of the morning when the family was fast asleep and could not react immediately. Um, the price tag tactic is typically used by radical Jewish settlers attacking Palestinian homes, Christian churches, mosques, and government buildings in response, in quotes, in response to Palestinian attacks on Jewish settlements. Um, so one of these 
so they put they they daub these price tag marks on the, the the family's home. Now, what really gets me is the kind of official response to this. So, Lieutenant Colonel Peter Peter Lerner, uh, this is a spokesman for the IDF, um, whom we all love, of course. This attack against civilians is nothing short of a barbaric act of terrorism. Oh, I agree. Uh, a comprehensive investigation is underway in order to find the terrorists and bring them justice. Uh, the IDF strongly condemns this deplorable act and has heightened its efforts in the field to locate those responsible. Um, so, yeah, this coming from the IDF, which is arguably one of the biggest terrorist organizations on the planet that regularly does things that are infinitely worse. Well, you can't get worse, but let's say just quantitatively, they do the same thing and they just multiply it by thousands and thousands and get away with it. And then for them to come out and say, oh, this is a deplorable terrorist act, well, you do the same thing. I mean, I'm just going to take the Lord's name in vain. There. Go ahead. <laughs> Jeebus. Um, but uh, now, related to this, so Netanyahu has said you know, similar things, um, but just this Wednesday, he approved the construction of 300 new homes in the central West Bank Jewish settlement um, of Bayat El, despite international condemnation. Um, well, yeah, yeah. Just a little context. I mean, you have these uh, you have these Jewish settlers who are being paid by the Israeli government. Many of them are Americans. Some of them are Russians, uh, and from various other places. Uh, they're planting them there uh, in the West Bank, uh, in in these areas that. Uh, the whole world has already acknowledged uh, our Palestinian lands. Um, so you have the High Court of Israel uh, basically every five or ten years says, oh, you know, you can't really build there. It's against the law. Uh, Netanyahu does this kind of symbolic, you know, um, destruction or, or, or the government does this symbolic uh, kind of stopping of construction in some area that they're building these settlements on and uh, and then it starts up again and uh you know the the elephant in the room the obvious point of all of this is if if you're for this peace process as you as you claim every so often why would you continue uh to build these settlements with these uh really radicalized uh fanatical uh jewish settlers um, who really, in their heart of hearts, believe that um, they're God's chosen people, and uh, and and the Palestinians go to hell. Um, you know, why would you continue to support that? Um, it's always it's always been a question in my mind, even before uh, the the greater extent of the injustice was uh, was known to me. Um, you know, it's. On a very basic level, it's it's dishonest brokering. It's fundamentally. It's always a good idea to have someone crazier than you are that you can point at whenever you do something wrong and say, "Hey, look at these crazy guys." So you gotta have a space. You gotta have space for them. Basically, they, you know, some nice settlements that you can put them so they can be crazy all they want, and then you say, "Oh, I don't like those guys. They're totally crazy," even though I put them there. Mm-hmm. And uh, you know, don't pay attention to the thousands of Palestinians that I've killed. Just look at these guys. And that's really what it's about. It's about uh, Liebenstrom, if I'm using the word correctly. It's about living space. It's about Eretz Israel. It's about uh, all the things that the 
Israeli government is willing to do uh, to push native peoples uh, in the Middle East out of their uh, out of their lands. Uh, and if they don't do that, then they can divide and conquer these people uh, by supporting uh, al-Nusra Front or ISIS or uh, or fomenting dissent and uh, and division among uh, groups that already exist there. Uh, and they're experts at this, and they've been doing it a long time. Um, one more point about that is uh, the West Bank in particular. About 500,000 Jews live in more than 100 settlements built since Israel's 1967 occupation of the West Bank in East Jerusalem. Um, the settlements are actually considered illegal under international law, but Israel disputes it, and of course, no one in, in the UN or any other governing body has the uh, balls or the or the determination to um, actually call Israel on its behavior. Because the, the the reality is because everyone is like batshit. Well, they know that Israel's batshit crazy and they're totally afraid. Like if you just transfer the scenario with Iran and the nuclear weapons, um, that's really Israel. Everyone's afraid that Israel is just going to blow up the planet because they are so batshit crazy. Mm-hmm. So it's like, okay, well, we're not even going to, you know, we'll, we'll say, you know, we'll say that that's legal and you shouldn't do that, but we're not actually going to back it up in any way because we know that you're crazy and they will just blow everyone up if we actually try to do anything about it because these people are crazy. And that's what really gets me is that these guys, like these Orthodox Jews can go on flights and act like total lunatic assholes and get away with it. And everyone's talking about Muslim extremism when there's like Jewish extremists that are just as bad mm-hmm. that are being given being given these you know posh apartments in occupied territory and being defended by the Israeli state when they're batshit crazy. These people are lunatics. Well, while uh, while the IDF is busy um, you know, stealing land and destroying the Palestinians' infrastructure, uh, murdering their children and imprisoning you know uh, so many so many so many palestinians um people can you know rest assured that uh the idf is actually a humane uh organization because now they're uh, actually offering or they're eating vegans oh i'm i'm sorry they're eating vegan <laughs> uh um so yeah apparently uh now uh to kind of resurrect this this idea that they are this you know humanitarian type organization they they are offering uh people who are vegan um they can have non leather boots uh they can eat um lentil burgers and you know have all these uh, vegan options because they care about animal rights that, is that right yeah Wow. Well, this is a, this is the truth. This that's, is actually that's at least two steps removed from eating bacon. I figure. <laughs> yeah. Well, they can have their lentil burgers, but you know, it's 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 just absurd uh, when you know you see what the IDF is doing, and then to to you know have this uh, facade of, well, you know, they 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 care about uh, animals and you know animal rights, and you know, it's just, it's such garbage. Well, speaking of um, speaking of uh, chosen philosophies and uh, kind of global um, kind of sacrosanct uh, ideas that are foisted upon people that are 
don't know any better. Shane, you had a little bit that you wanted to discuss about uh, global warming? Uh, yes, I, I've, I've been uh, getting hot and bothered by global warming. Um, yeah, there's there's been uh, several stories this past uh, couple weeks. Um, global warming is always in the news, um, but yeah, so from time to time I'll look up what's uh, what's going on in this uh, really bizarre reality. Um, so one of the stories is that apparently global warming is causing ISIS. That, that's yeah. Uh, that's that's the cause of I can see it. Yeah. You, you mean ice, right? Like, uh, <laughs> like it's uh, you know, the ice precipitation well, <laughs> and, and then the, the that, ice that, forms after. You know? No, yeah. Well, that that you know that would be uh, probably closer to the truth, but um, no. <laughs> it's it's yeah. There's uh, one of the Democratic presidential hopeful. Uh, he's uh, Martin O'Malley. Uh, he's I think a previous governor of uh, Maryland. So he told uh, Bloomberg News um, that um, yeah, all the 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 ISIS, the rise of ISIS, it was uh, it's because of climate change and the mega drought that has affected uh, Syria has uh, drove farmers and uh, people um, you know out of that land and uh, created these conditions of extreme poverty. Now the the problem with this is that the drought well several issues here one is that uh the, the people of Syria have experienced drought for you know many 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 years and have uh have means of you know um working through that so to say that well because they're experiencing a drought now all of a sudden you know this is this has caused uh uh, ISIS to form, you know, it just doesn't have any basis in reality and doesn't have any relation to, uh, you know, the supposed global warming, um, which by chance you know, there is no global warming because, you know, there there has been no global warming trend for the past 17 years. Mm-hmm. Yet we still see uh, story after story that this is the year that this is the warmest year ever on record. You know, 2015 slated to be uh, the warmest year ever, and 2014 was the warmest year ever. No, 2011 was the warmest year ever. And yet, but really, 1998, that was the last time that, you know, we really had this this, uh, this extreme uh, temperature, this, this high temperature. And since then, there has been no trend. Um, but that doesn't that doesn't keep people from... You know, making these these ridiculous claims, and it's, uh, along these same lines. Wait, wait, wait. Uh, Let's sorry. back up. <laughs> no, because you know this is really interesting. Um, you corrected me when you know I, I thought it was ice. And said, no, it's ISIS. So uh, ISIS is going to um, solve uh, the drought in in Syria, and according to some, and that's what O'Malley's like. What? what like, I I just don't get it. He, he he's attributing. Well, there's not much uh, to get, I don't think. But but he's saying that the the, just the hot weather, weather makes people crazy. Yes. Oh, <laughs> okay. Basically. Yes. I see. That. That's um, a new one on me. Well, he's not the only one making these types of claims. Uh, the the Pope recently came out saying that um, <clears throat> the human traffic human trafficking uh, is is linked 
to climate change as well. And it kind of has the same, the similar basis that um, there's this, uh, that climate change is causing this forced migration. Um, it's the you know, number one cause of poverty. But, you know, the problem with this is that there aren't any groups of people that are migrating because of climate change. They don't, they don't exist. So, you know, it's, you know, there, there, there are, where are the, these climate refugees? Um, there, there has been in the past, you know, there's been um, towns that have had to uh, evacuate, but, you know, we're, when we get into this, we're talking about the last mini ice age. Mm -hmm. um, you know, it's been some years and, you know, we may see something like that, you know, uh, down the line. Well, you know, we're already in an ISIS age, huh. and uh, so I think I think they just got the causation re reversed. Is that is that uh, well, global warming does? Yeah, like you're saying, Iran, global warming causes causes ISIS. ISIS because the ice forms as a result of the many increased, ice <laughs> increased precipitation, and then it ends it ends up coming down as ice and creating an ice age. So global warming causes ISIS. Globalizes. So maybe uh, former governor of Maryland like read that and you know somewhere and misinterpreted it. Or? That's, that's a possibility. That's a possibility. That's a possibility. <laughs> um, but there, there was, um, there was actually one, um, you know, slightly sane, or there was one sane voice in the media, um, you know, this past week or past couple weeks. Um, there was a uh, Dr. Ivar. Uh, Geyser, uh, he's the 1973 Nobel Prize uh, winner in in physics, and uh, he actually made some some headlines uh, a few years ago uh, when he quit the American Physical Society over its official position uh, regarding global warming, which is basically saying that uh, uh, global warming is incontrovertible, and you know basically no questioning that and given that that's a non-scientific stance uh he quit so or he resigned um and uh, he recently gave a speech to uh, a nobel forum uh, on the topic of global warming and you know, expanded on on his position a bit and um he goes into a lot of different details. It's about a half hour long, uh, worth checking out and um, going over some of the specific details. Uh, but I think we have a we have a clip, mm -hmm. and uh, we'll, we'll listen to some of the things he says about um, not just you know the the specifics, but just the the general attitude that's really pushed uh, about you know this whole global warming scheme. Global warming is really a hot topic. And what I said then, and which I still believe, is that global warming really has become a new religion. Because you can't discuss it. It's not proper. If you say global, see, if you see, if you look at Linda here today, then all the people who are, you know, notable people, they have said climate change in their talks. All of them have said it. I don't know whether they know what they mean, but they have said it anyway. Everybody talks about climate change. So the American Physical Society 
which I was a member, said the evidence is incontrovertible that global warming exists. Now, think about that. This is a physical society. And they say you cannot discuss global warming because we believe it's happening. It's like the Catholic Church. There are lots of incontrovertible truth in the Catholic Church, I'm sure. And here there's an incontrovertible truth in a physical society. So the only, only answer to that is to resign. And the other thing which upset me is that what is the optimum temperature for the earth? Is that the temperature we have right now? That would be a miracle. Maybe it's two degrees warmer. Maybe it's two degrees colder. But nobody has told me what the optimal temperature is for the whole earth. This is a little bit like American foreign policy. The foreign policy wants things to be as they are because we have it good in the United States. And, uh, but even the foreign policy can't control the climate. The other thing is that both the alarmist and the deniers, I guess I'm quoted as a denier, measures the average temperature for the whole, for the whole earth for a whole year at to a fraction of a degree. And that result is significant. Of course it's not. How can you possibly measure the average temperature for the whole earth and for the whole year and come up with a fraction of a degree? So I have this slide here. I think the average temperature of the earth is equal to the emperor's new clothes. Was a, was a boy who said, you know, cried, that's might. The emperor has no clothes on. And I would cry out and say, you can't measure the temperature for the whole earth by such accuracy. Yeah, so that was uh, Dr. Ivor Gevier. And, um, yeah, I think he makes uh, a lot of solid points there. And, um, you know, particularly about, you know, this idea that, you know, we can measure uh, the, the temperature of the earth, especially over a period of an entire year. And, you know, this isn't even getting into, you know, all the uh, corruption uh, from from NASA and the Goddard Institute and the the um, the messing, the cooking of the books, um, so to speak. And uh, it, it's it's just it's just a you know it's a really um, baffling phenomenon uh, that we're seeing and uh, kind of you know it's indicative of uh, so many other uh, areas um, of. Uh, ideology, and really that's what this is. Like he says, you know, uh, global warming has become uh, a religion, and, you know, it's not something that you can question. Well, on that note, yeah, I think we're going to wrap it up for the day. But uh, just all that, I mean, we talked about uh, the religion of global warming and the ultra-Orthodox religion of uh, those crazy Jewish terrorists and, of course, the crazy Muslim terrorists. And I think all these people just uh, give religion a bad name. Because, all their, because now these people, just by virtue of the, the level of their craziness, they get a lot of attention. And they're then the people that the, the crazy atheists focus on to give an image of what religion is when, I mean, religion is just the way you live your life. And 
the of course there are many aspects that go along with the way you live with the way you live your life. So I think just by um, by looking at these individuals and what they actually do, it gives some idea of what their religion really is, and that is the, you know just this animal behavior. And I don't think that's a, a religion worth living. And and there's alternatives. So I just wouldn't uh, wouldn't throw the baby out with the yeah, and it's not asking. Water. It's, there's no curiosity there. There, there are no questions. No. They live with all the answers, and uh, they're an end unto themselves. And uh, they cl- close off all possibilities for for other information and knowledge. And uh, and they're they're kind of stuck. They just they use religion as a way of doing what they really want to do, which is to hurt people, to kill people, to elevate themselves above other people, to make themselves feel better about themselves and to feel special. When that is, uh, that's not religious, that's just psychopathy, that's narcissism. It's the lowest form of human behavior. And so, I mean, these people are just uh, an insult to the human race. And, um, well, that's all I have to say about that. Well, when and when you look at religion and what it fundamentally is, um, like you say, Harrison, um, you know, way of living your life. You know, these, this idea that we have about religion, you know, really is anti-religion. Mm-hmm. You know, and just the same with science. You know, science and and religion can both be, you know, uh, immensely valuable things. But you know, what it's become today is, you know, it's anti-science, and religion's become anti-religion. You know, it's 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 been become its opposite. Mm-hmm. And on that note, we'll leave you there for the week. So thanks, everyone, for tuning in, and we'll be back next week. Uh, tune in tomorrow for Behind the Headlines. They've got a good show and interview coming up. And, uh, yeah, everyone take care. Thanks for listening, everybody. Goodbye, everybody.